All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Genesis, actually the final chapter of Genesis. But the last time we were here in chapter 49, we saw the prophetic blessing of Jacob upon the sons, upon his 12 sons. And when we say the blessings upon his sons, the idea is not so much as he is blessing his sons before he dies, but he is speaking prophetically concerning them and the children that should come from them. That is who will form the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. He speaks prophetically of what will become of those people in the latter times. Okay. And so as we saw in the blessing of each individual son, uh, concerning once again, now, those tribal peoples that will come, each of those peoples had some sense of a reflection of the personage of that son. That is, you can see some sort of a characteristic of each son that he prophesied concerning, each people that he prophesied concerning, with respect to their father, to their ancestral father. They would have something in common with them. But also, too, uh, in notation to these blessings, because I don't think it's necessary to go into all of the details of these things uh, over and over again, because that's basically what is going on in the chapter in its entirety, that prophetic word. But two things we do want to note, that is how he prophesied that Judah would eclipse Joseph in blessing and as well as in greatness. And he also let us see how that it would be from Judah who would rule over the tribal families of Jacob and not only simply Jacob, but have the obedience to all the peoples. And that is he was speaking of the Messiah who should come from Judah, whom we already know to be Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, and he will one day have rule and reign over the world in what we call the messianic kingdom. And so he prophesied this concerning Judah, how he would eclipse Joseph in greatness. But nevertheless, for the time being and even for the near future, Joseph's family, and this is the second point, Joseph's family, namely from the tribe of Ephraim, which was the younger son of Joseph, but Joseph's family will have the dominance and the preeminence. And he gave Joseph the blessing of the birthright before all of his brothers. And he also pronounced great abundance of blessing. It was like a superfluity of blessing upon the head of Joseph's family. And once he finished blessing, the prophetic blessing, we understand what I mean by that. And once he gave these final words to his sons, he died. And we see that J Jacob died at the age of 147 years of age. Okay. Now let's get into chapter 50. As we now see Jacob, the great patriarch has died and Joseph prepares to bury him in the land of Canaan. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, 
Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Okay, so the story basically continues from chapter 49. As Jacob dies, once again, we see Joseph weeping over his father and kissing him. And so then he commanded, that is, Joseph commanded his physicians to embalm his father, Jacob. And it also, we know, the reference is to Israel, speaks of his name as the tribal leader of the family. And this is the first time in scripture we see embalming being used. And the Hebrew word that is used here means to put in, it comes from a, a, a base of spices to spice. And basically that's what the Egyptians did. Now it is a very lengthy process and we're not going to get into that uh, uh, in this particular video, but nevertheless, the process took apparently 40 days. And this was the normal process that it took. But also too, we see that Joseph commanded his physicians to embalm his father and not the usual uh, magicians and embalmers who would be involved in this process. And that's because a lot of times when the, these other embalmers would be involved in the process, we would see uh, certain idolatrous practices that were observed by the Egyptians taking place to the gods of Egypt. Okay. And so Joseph would not have, of course, he, he is a worshiper and server of the true God. And of course, Jacob, his father was, so he not, he did not want to associate the idolatrous practices of embalming. And so therefore, in, instead of using the normal embalmers here, he used the physicians to do so because these idolatrous practices would be ignored. And so the normal time it would take would be 40 days. And that's basically what it took. And so they mourned for him. Notice not only was uh, Jacob mourned by his brothers, his sons and their families. He was also mourned by the Egyptians. And notice this whole period of mourning was for 70 days. Now you got to remember too, Jacob, the father of Joseph. So Jacob is not so much as well known. It is Joseph who is well known by the Egyptians, even the household of Pharaoh. So it is because of the great respect that the Egyptians and Pharaoh have for Joseph that they give this great mourning for his father. So it is all out of respect for Joseph. Okay. And so notice also too, we see the whole household of Pharaoh being involved. And as we move through the text, we're going to see even a great representative of the household of Pharaoh involved in this mourning process. But nevertheless, so as this period is taking place, this embalming, Joseph, of course, out of respect for the Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, Joseph sends to Pharaoh and he requests to go to, he has to take his father 
and take him back to the land of promise there in land of Canaan and bury him. So he seeks permission from the Pharaoh because we remember how Jacob made Joseph to swear uh, uh, personally when Joseph, when Jacob was blessing Jake, Joseph and his sons, as well as the prophetic blessing we saw in chapter 49 to all of his sons, take him back to the land of promise and bury him there in the cave of Machpelah. Okay. But nevertheless, so he goes, he goes to Pharaoh. He makes the request. My father made me, made me to swear to bury him in the land of promise. And of course, Pharaoh gives Joseph permission to take his father after the embalming process is finished to take him back to the land of Canaan and there bury his father there. All right. Verse number seven. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grieving, grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Avil Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Okay, so now they have began the process of transporting the remains of Jacob to the land of promise. And so when he went up to bury his father, he had a royal entourage of the Pharaoh. Once again, no need to make a big deal out of this. It is just simply to show the great respect that Pharaoh had for Joseph in sending so many people of his own household. So you have to understand that that's the household of the Pharaoh. Notice all the servants of the Pharaoh, the elders of the house of the land of Egypt. So this is a great entourage from the land of Egypt going to this great funeral procession of Jacob, the Hebrew. Okay. So this is the very thing again, just indicating the great deep respect that the Egyptians and Pharaoh had for Joseph. Okay. And also we see Royal protection that was given to them when we see the chariots and the horsemen. So we have a, a, a Royal uh, uh, dignitarians as well as protection from the household of Pharaoh. And then they came to this certain point called the threshing floor of Atad. And once they cross over, basically the area is the Cis Jordan. And then we saw another stage of grievance. And Joseph, once again, he just broke down in great grief for his father. And they lamented for Jacob seven additional days. So this was great grief for the patriarch Jacob. And it kind of makes you think about things, you know, in the life that Jacob lived and Jacob himself even said to Pharaoh, how his days were full of trouble. He said, full of evil, but nevertheless, 
He was a man who was deeply missed and deeply respected by all, even through his son, Joseph. But nevertheless, as they were at this particular place, this threshing floor of Atad, and remember, they are back in the promised land and amongst the Canaanites. The Canaanites saw this great entourage of Egyptians. They could tell that these were Egyptian people and they saw the Egyptians mourning in such a way. And it, and it even kind of moved the Canaanites themselves to observe the mourning. And therefore, they themselves, because of this great visual mourning of the Egyptians, they renamed the place and called it Avil Mizraim, which literally means the mourning of Egypt. Okay. And so they renamed that place. Okay. Verse number 12, the actual burial of Jacob. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them for his sons carried him in, carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. Okay, let me simply, let, let me deal with this point because it's going to change a little bit here. And so as, Ab I'm sorry, as Jacob had made Joseph to swear, as he made his sons, as he commanded all of his sons in that final prophetic utterance and blessing, they buried him in the cave of his ancestors. And it was the ancestral burial place. We know, I believe it's Genesis chapter 25 again, that when Sarah had died, Abraham purchased it from the sons of Heth. And it was called the cave of Machpelah. It was there as Jacob himself told us that Abraham and Sarah was buried, Rebecca and Isaac was buried, where Jacob buried Leah, and now Jacob is finally laid to rest there himself in the ancestral caves of his fathers. And he is laid to rest, and thus the promise of ja a promise that Jacob made his son Joseph, as well as all of his sons make, they have now fulfilled this promise as well as what God has said. Remember when God wanted to comfort Jacob's heart? I believe that was in chapter 46 when Jacob was in Beersheba. And we can see him uh, a slight trepidation in the spirit of Jacob about leaving the promised land. And there God appeared to Jacob in a, vi in a vision of a dream and told him that he will leave the promised land, but God will be with him and bring him back to the promised land and that Joseph himself would bury him, would lay his hands over his eyes. And thus the word of God is fulfilled. Jacob has been returned. He is now buried by his son, Joseph, in the land of promise. Okay, so now the narrative continues to move and now begins to shift into the mind of the brothers. The father has now died and they are wondering what will become of them now that the father is dead? What will Joseph do? Will he remember their sins against him now that the father has died? So now let's move into that particular section. Verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Man, I really, really like that. And I pray God give me the heart, the spirit of Joseph himself. But anyway, so what happened? All right. Their father, Jacob, is dead. And they're saying maybe Joseph is now going to take vengeance on us because the only reason why he didn't harm us is because dad was still alive. Now that dad is dead. He's going to get us. And that's basically what they're thinking. And so they come with this report to Joseph saying to Joseph that their father, notice what they said, your father, because they know the close relationship that Joseph had with his father, Jacob, and how Jacob truly loved Joseph. So they did not make the appeal from themselves. They made the appeal come from Joseph's father, who he just buried trying to touch his heart saying, truly, he'll do what dad said, all right? However, there is no mention anywhere where actually Jacob said these words. So whether Jacob said these words or not, we really don't know. The brothers could have made it up in order to try to, they want things to go well. They don't want Joseph to actually execute them. And that's the whole idea. Remember, Joseph is a man of power. This is not the world that we live in today where you go to courts and all these type of things. Like, no, no, no. By Joseph's word, they could live or die. So therefore, Joseph could have had them executed. So this is the fear that's in the back of their mind. And so they go to Joseph and said, your father, our dad, said, please forgive your brothers. They did you wrong. But please forgive. And notice what he calls them, the servants of the God of your father. And it is in this interjection here that I believe. And I almost feel like preaching again. I'm fighting that urge. But it's in this particular statement where they refer to themselves. And I, I know that they're trying to appeal to Joseph, appeal to mercy, appeal to his sense of judgment so that they that Joseph won't hurt them, execute them. But again, the statement he they call themselves the servants of the God of Jacob. By this, what I'm trying to say to you guys is this. Recall how the brothers of Joseph envied him, how they hated him, how they mistreated him, 
how they desired to kill him. All of this from chapter 37 and even ultimately how they sold him into slavery. OK, so the brothers did wicked things. And then when you look at, uh, say, for instance, Judah in chapter 38 and how his conduct was so awful. Remember that he departed from his brothers, started fooling around with the Canaanites, married the Canaanite women. His sons ended up being so corrupt, two of them being killed. Judah himself sleeping with his own daughter-in-law, supposing that she was a Canaanite idolatrous prostitute, all of these things. And even we find out Simon marrying a Canaanite woman. My whole point, it's a beautiful thing. In all of the conduct of these brothers, not to excuse them, but once again to go back to Genesis 42 and verse 11, when they first came before Joseph and said, we are honest men. And the whole test of Joseph, remember those three tests? Go back and look at the study that we did concerning what Joseph did in the testing of his brothers. My point here is they call themselves the servants of God. God clearly worked in the lives of these awful men and changed them. And if God could change these awful men, just think about what I just said. Think about the things that they did. Think about how they mistreated Joseph, even desired to kill him. The transforming hand of God can change anybody, anybody. So therefore, I have great hope in these brothers. Okay, so so let me just move on. Go back to the commentary of the text. So they came to Joseph and they fell down before Joseph and declared themselves to be. We are your servants. That is, we are your slaves. And that's what they said. Once again, we have an illusion back. What? To chapter 37 all over again to the dream of Joseph, where he said to his brothers, where your sheaves bow down to me. And the 11 stars bowed down to me. And this was an indication. This represented the brothers themselves, the fulfillment all over again, over and over again, them falling down before Joseph. And here they fall down begging for mercy. So now you can imagine, remember how when they first came to Joseph and Judah did this, I'm sorry, the second time they came and Judah did the great plea and Joseph broke down. He couldn't handle it. Once again, they have touched Joseph's heart. And then not only did they touch Joseph's heart, as, imagine as he looked at his brothers on the ground by him before him saying, please don't kill us. We are your slaves. Daddy said had mercy on us. And man, that hurts. It almost makes me want to cry. But imagine as it touches Joseph's heart, not simply because of what they're doing now, but how they misunderstand him. You, you don't understand who I am. And so Joseph breaks down, not just because of what he sees, but also because they don't understand. So this is what we're talking about as we move further in the text. OK, so what? Uh, where am I? But Joseph said to them. So when that happened, he comforts their heart. Verse number 18. He says to them two times, do not be afraid. <laughs> do not be afraid. I will not hurt you. And then he makes his other statement in verse number 18. Am I in the place of God? 
Now, what he was literally saying was, at the proverbial, remember Proverbs chapter 25? Remember Romans chapter 12 when Paul uses this same idea and concept, same principle. Uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Again, remember how he talks about this? Oh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire upon his head. But the whole point is, when Joseph says to his brothers, am I in the place of God? He is simply saying, it's not my place to judge you. I will not take vengeance on you. If someone would judge you for this, it is not me who would do so. He said, but you know what I understand? Joseph has had plenty of time to consider all the events that transpired in his life from the moment of his youth at the age of 17, when he was sold as a slave at 17 years of age into Egypt, he understood how God used his brother's envy, his brother's hatred, and how God used his being slow, sold as a slave into Egypt, into the house of Potiphar, his Potiphar's wife. God used all of these things, but nevertheless, the issue is about the brothers. God used sovereignly their ill feelings toward Joseph. He understood it. He said, you meant it for bad, for evil. He said, but God meant, God used your maltreatment, ill treatment of me. He meant it for good. So Joseph understood the divine hand involved in all of this. Why? So that he could save many people alive, even as it is this day. That is, in all of these events, how it transpired to bring Joseph, hatred of the brothers, selling him as a slave, into the house of Potiphar, mis uh, uh, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, placed in prison, being introduced to the servants of Pharaoh, the, uh, then the servant of Pharaoh, that is the cupbearer, remembering Joseph, telling the Pharaoh about Joseph, about Joseph when the Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph being taken out of the prison, brought before the Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh, Joseph interpreting the dream of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh being impressed by Joseph so much that he made Joseph second in all of Egypt. All of these e events transpired to bring Joseph to the place where he was in order that Joseph could save the lives of his people and not only his people, but the Egyptians and even some of the Canaanites who had come down into Egypt to buy bread. Okay. But nevertheless, we know also too, not only just that uh, temporal event that Joseph is speaking about, what temporal event? Saving the lives of his people. We also know because we have the advantage of scripture, the full revelation of scripture. We know it was because the Jewish tribal people, Jacob's family, would not keep themselves away from the Canaanites. And so therefore, it was the sovereign hand of God bringing them down into Egypt, into the land of Goshen, so that they could be separate from the Canaanites, so that they wouldn't have to intermarry with the Canaanites, be involved with the idolatrous ways of the Canaanites, and therefore be able to grow into a great people and fulfill their divine destiny. That is, 
what God had determined them to be from the call of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, that they should be a people to preserve the knowledge and the worship of God and through them bless the Gentile nations. This would not, this was constantly under threat. One more rehearsal of this. Genesis chapter 34, we saw this being a constant rehearsal of threat. Genesis chapter 38, Judah, a, a threat. We constantly saw this threat. And so God brought, he used the famine to bring them, force them into the land of Egypt. But he sent Joseph there ahead of time to provide and take care of them in the land of Egypt, okay? And so this is the full picture of what's going on. But the mindset of Joseph to his brothers is, God sent me ahead of you to take care of you. Don't worry, I will not harm you. He said, but instead of harming you, I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph is indeed a gracious and spectacular individual. May God make all of us, give all of us a heart like Joseph, okay? All right, and it says he spoke kindly to them. Now let's wrap it up. Verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Maker, the sons of the son of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, final issue, final words in the book of Genesis. So let me take my time just a little bit. So the years of Joseph's life was 110 years of age. So Joseph stood before the Pharaoh at the age of 30. So from the time that Joseph stood before the Pharaoh up until this time, it was 80 years. And this was considered an abundance of life uh, to the Egyptians. We know that Abraham lived 175 years, Isaac 180 years, his father, Joseph's father, Jacob 147 years, and now Joseph 110 years. But again, as I said, in the eyes of the Egyptians, this was considered to be a very long life. And it talked about the blessings and how he was able to see his grandchildren, the sons of Ephraim. And notice Ephraim, Joseph's younger son, is mentioned first. Ha! But because he is given the birthright. And so therefore, indeed, he becomes first. And so up until the third generation, his great, great grandchildren, he saw from Ephraim and then his great grandchildren he saw from his eldest son Manasseh but he was not given the birthright okay so just simply say the youngest uh, <laughs> Joseph lived long time saw his grandchildren ripe old age and when it talks about that the son of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees 
This is the sense that we also saw uh, uh, um, that it simply means adoption. So therefore, Joseph took these sons to be his own sons, the sons of Manasseh. Okay. All right. Same way in which we saw Jacob took Joseph's sons. He adopted them as his own. Remember when he said, your sons are mine. And therefore, Joseph's son became the sons of his sons. All right. And so then Joseph made his brothers to promise him something to take his bones back to the land of Canaan. All right. Now, let me deal with this point. In the text, verse number 24, it says, reading from NASB, God will surely take care of you. This is not really a good translation of what is being said here. He says, pakod yif code, and that he's using an infinitive Pakod, that's the infinitive. We don't want to get into a lot of Hebrew grammar here. An infinitive with the verbal construct. And that's why they say surely. And so that is no doubt. Now, the word code literally means to visit. All right. So the idea of what Joseph was saying was it, it not only implies take care of you. Yes, there is an implication that God will surely take care of his people there. But what he is simply what he is more so saying is God will return someday and do something for you. He will return and do what? The promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He will give you the land of promise. So in the day that God returns to the, to you and visit you and takes you back to the land of Canaan, you take back my bones. So that's what he is saying. So it's not just simply he'll take care of you. No, 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 no. God is going to visit you someday and God will return the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel back to the land of promise. And he made this statement twice when he says, we say it's reasoning in it. We read it in the NASB, surely take care of you. Let me just say it the way it ought. I know I'm being a little arrogant, <laughs> but let me just simply say it the way I think it should be said. God will surely visit you. Okay. And so then he says another point of emphasis, take up my bones back. Now that's interesting as well. What is he is inferring is, uh, no, notice two things too. There is no uh, place in scripture. There's no reference in scripture where God ever spoke to Joseph concerning these things. So therefore, all we have is the transmitted word that has come even to Joseph. In other words, the knowledge of what was said unto Abraham, chapter, chapter 12, how God spoke to Abraham about giving him the land of promise. Those things that he spoke to his father Isaac, those things that he spoke even to Jacob, the knowledge has been transferred, has been passed down even to Joseph. But we also recall, remember, it, it's a beautiful thing in Genesis chapter 15, how that God revealed to Abraham that his descendants would be in a land, not their own. And in the fourth generation, in 400 years, God would visit them and bring them back. So this knowledge, it's a beautiful thing 
has been transferred, has been passed down even to Joseph. So Joseph knows these prophecies that was given even to Abraham. And for this reason, he said he knows that by the time God visits them, it will be many years into the future. And therefore, he says, take my bones, because that's what will be the remains of Joseph, even after embalming. And I know the embalming process and the dehydration of the body. And we don't have time to get into that. But nevertheless, the time, the time, that's what we're emphasizing. It would be a long time. And so therefore, it would be the remains of Joseph that will have to be taken back to the land of promise. So he makes Israel, that is the tribes, the brothers, promise him that when this time does come, Take his remain back to the land of promise and bury him in his inheritance. And we do see that in the book of Exodus, I believe it's chapter 13. And I also think it's in Joshua 24, where the remains of Joseph was buried in what is it, Shechem in that uh, in his plot of land that his father Jacob had given to him. But anyway, so we see in the end that he died. 110 years of age, and he was also embalmed. But isn't it a very interesting thing that in the funeral of Joseph, it doesn't even mention it. It mentions the great funeral procession of his father, Jacob. But it's Joseph who has the exalted position, but nevertheless, the scripture doesn't speak of the funeral procession or things concerning Joseph in this manner. Very interesting as it ends with the patriarch Jacob. That is that great. Ah, I don't want to get into all of that. So what happens? He is embalmed just according to the Egyptians. That's what the Egyptians do. They embalm. And, we, and there is an assumption that he is not embalmed by, with, with the magical rites, hopefully not, with these idolatrous things that I told you about. But he is embalmed. And this is the first time we see someone being placed in a coffin because this was the uh, Egyptian way of burying, especially men, uh, dignitaries. All right. And he was placed in a coffin, buried in Egypt. Now, final thoughts about the book of Genesis. When we look at Genesis, we see Genesis beginning with life and we see Genesis beginning with with great expectation, great hope, but very shortly after chapter three, we see failure. When God created the first man, quickly he failed God and we see death. And so Genesis begins with life and Genesis ends with death. But nevertheless, even though when God said unto Adam, you will surely die, if you disobey me and then we see death coming a, in a funeral train that has continued even unto this day. But nevertheless, God gave him hope. What did he say? There is deliverance coming for you. A seed will come forth from a woman. Redemption is on the way. And so what do we see even now at the end of Genesis, the idea the hope of redemption. And as we get ready, as we end Genesis and prepare to move into the book of Exodus, that is our new theme, redemption, 
hope God will deliver. But ultimately, even as we look at Genesis, we have planted the seed of Genesis 3 and 15. What did God say? The seed shall come forth from a woman. So it is not simply the redemption of a nation of Jewish people from the land of bondage of Egypt, but we will see one man, one seed, Jesus of Nazareth, the true redeemer who not simply redeems Israel from all of her strife, but he redeems humanity as a whole from the grips of sin, from death itself. For what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as the, the sin of Adam brought forth death. And what does Jesus do? Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy that Jesus will destroy is death itself. He is the true redeemer for only God can remove the curse of death and give life itself from the dead. Okay. That's enough preaching. Thank you guys for joining me in the book of Genesis. I truly hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So join me once again as we move from Genesis, from the book of life to death, and now move back into redemption once again in the book of Exodus. So join me as we continue in our teachings in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. See you next time.